This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. You may have seen the photo. A young man lying on a hospital bed wearing an oxygen mask, holding up his ID card to the camera. That was Dr. Li Wenliang, an eye specialist at Wuhan Central Hospital in China. Really, I suppose, he was the first human face of the coronavirus. On the 30th of December last year, Dr. Li sent a message to other medics in an online chat group. It was a warning. He'd seen seven patients in his hospital with symptoms he thought were like SARS. That was the epidemic which affected 26 countries in 2003. He advised his colleagues to take care, to wear protective gear. And then days later, he was summoned in the middle of the night by the health authorities in Wuhan, and he was accused of making false statements and frightening people unnecessarily. He was made to sign a document disowning his, quote, illegal behavior. And then he became an immediate icon. The individual who defied the Communist Party system of information control and sounded the alarm for the greater good. He also became infected. Dr. Lee went back to work, and early in January, he went down with the coronavirus. On February the 1st, he uploaded that now famous photo. Tonight, we learned that the virus had killed this man, Dr. Li Wenliang. In early December, this brave Wuhan doctor had attempted to warn the authorities about the spread of a dangerous new virus. His warnings were ignored. On February the 7th, at 34 years old, he died. For a time, China was obsessed by Dr. Li, the ophthalmologist with a young son and a pregnant wife who had blown the whistle and paid for it with his life. The rest of the world was fascinated, deeply troubled by the realization that health workers, even young ones, could die from this virus. But then, as the virus spread, our attention inevitably and rapidly moved on. But it turns out we should have stayed focused. The threat that the coronavirus poses to health workers may be one of the stories of this pandemic. I'm James Harding, and welcome to Slow News, this week's Tortoise podcast. We know, as of course you do, that there is no shortage of news on the coronavirus, and we certainly don't want to add to the waves of noise and uncertainty around it. What we're trying to do, if we can, is to make sense of it, to learn as we go. And there is a mysterious, disturbing pattern that began with Dr. Lee and sadly has reached into hospitals all over the world. It's the deaths of those people who are trying to save our lives. 
As we record this in the last week of March 2020, Europe is the centre of the pandemic. The United States may well overtake it soon, but at the moment, it's Europe that's where we're seeing most of the coronavirus and learning most about it. Back now to Spain, another country in a desperate battle to stem the coronavirus, and another country where healthcare workers are testing positive for the virus in large numbers. They now account for more than Spain has the second highest number of cases in the continent. On Wednesday, its death toll passed China's. 738 people died in Spain in just one day. That's more than ever before. We're starting to understand what acute wards in hospitals dealing with COVID-19 are like. Crammed with people and equipment, they don't look normal. And the health workers we see in them, on TV or social media, are frantic, barely coping. Maybe they're not really coping at all. One of the busiest doctors in Europe was kind enough to spare a few minutes to talk to us about what life is like in a hospital today in Spain. My name is Sara Alcantara. I work as an intensive care physician in Hospital Puerta de Hierro in Madrid, in Spain. Dr Alcantara sent us her thoughts after another exhausting shift. Up to today, two weeks after the outbreak, we have around 44 patients in our ICU and almost 90% of them are under mechanical ventilation. Although we haven't reached yet our 50-bed limit, we are already expanding and getting ready 20 new ICU beds. We think we have enough equipment, but we know that the situation is not exactly the same for all the hospitals across the community of Madrid. Right now, we know that Spain has not reached their, its peak, although the Spanish government is telling us that probably we will be reaching this peak around the end of this week. Right now, we really do not know how many people are actually being infected by the coronavirus because we are not testing everybody, only the most severe cases. But this amounts for around 4,500 cases each day and around 500 disease every day. Overall, we can say that it's very difficult to cope with all this situation. It's difficult from the mental point of view because you really do not know what is going to happen in the next couple of days and if we will be able to take care of everyone that actually gets a critically ill. A group of psychiatrists from my center have decided to start a support group for ICU doctors where we can speak about what's going on in our heads and how we are feeling right now. I think that this part is very important and that we might need lots of help after the pandemia has subsided. The coronavirus pandemic is generating huge numbers but they never mean as much as names, the recognition of each individual life. And to understand what's happening in Italy, I'd like to do a roll call, a roll of honour, really, if you'll allow for my terrible Italian accent, because it's sobering. These, so far, are the health workers who died treating patients in Italy. Roberto Stella from Varese, president of the Varese Medical Association, he was 67. Giuseppe Lantani from Como, a pulmonologist, he was 74. Giuseppe Borghi from Lodi, a doctor of general medicine who was 65. Raffaele Giura from Como, former head of the pneumology department, 80 years old. Carlo Zaffarid from Bergamo, he was a pediatrician, aged 81. Gino Fasoli, a GP in Brescia, he was 74. Luigi Fusciante from Como, a doctor of general medicine, 
aged 71. Mario Giovita from Bergamo, a doctor of general medicine, he was 66. Luigi Ablondi from Cremona, an epidemiologist, who was 67. Franco Galli, a GP in Mantova, he was 66. Ivano Vezzulli, another GP from Lodi, 62. Massimo Borghese, an ear, nose and throat specialist in Naples, was 64. Marcello Natali, a GP from Lodi, was 57. Antonino Buttafuoco from Bergamo, a doctor of general medicine, he was 67. Giuseppe Finzi, a haematologist from Parma, was 63. Francesco Foltrani, a GP in Macerata, who was 68. Andrea Carli, another GP from Lodi, was 70. Bruna Galavotti, a psychiatrist in Bergamo, was 87. Piero Lucarelli, who was also from Bergamo and an anaesthetist, was 74. And again in Bergamo, Vincenzo Leone, a 66-year-old GP. Antonia Buenomo, a forensic pathologist in Naples, was also 66. Leonardo Marchi from Cremona was an infectious disease physician. He was 64. Manfredo Squeri, head of the medicine department at a nursing home in Parma, was 77. Rosario Lupo, a medical examiner in Bergamo, was 65. And Domenico Di Giello, a doctor of general medicine in Lecce, died at the age of 67. Doctors and nurses and healthcare workers are, of course, also people. They bring to their work the frailties and underlying health issues that all the rest of us have. But there are some searching questions to answer here. When we begin to realise that the pattern is not just of infections amongst healthcare workers, but of deaths. Is there something to the idea that the viral load, the lethality of this infection, is greater when you're repeatedly exposed to it? Or, as Italian and Chinese researchers have begun to suggest, is there an issue with exposure to patients in the early phase of contracting the illness when it seems to be more potent? How much of this is a systemic failure in hospitals, either to understand the scale of the protective clothing and equipment that's needed, or the false hope that COVID-19 wards, aka dirty wards, could be separated from the other wards, the COVID-negative wards? And how much in all of this are we focusing on protective clothing and exposure to deflect from what is perhaps an even greater and unanswerable mental strain on all health workers, namely devoting your life to saving the lives of others only to find that you are telling patients that you can't give them the life-saving treatment for C19 or, for that matter, cancer, heart and other surgeries that they need? How do you support doctors, nurses and volunteers through the mental trauma of being helpless witnesses to preventable deaths? Here in the UK, we're not in Italy's position or Spain's. Not yet. But it looks like we may well get there. Last week, Northwick Park Hospital, a big hospital on the outskirts of London, declared a critical incident after a surge in coronavirus patients. And every other hospital knows it's just a matter of time. And every person working there, the regular staff, the junior doctors who've come out of training early to throw themselves into the fight, the retired health workers who've gone back to help, every one of them knows the personal risk that they're running. A lot of doctors are learning new skills, how to use a ventilator, that kind of thing, so they can play their part in the fight against this virus which affects people in very particular ways. 
James Kinross is a specialist in the bowel, a colorectal surgeon. We did a podcast together just a couple of months ago about the gut as the new frontier in medicine. Frankly, it feels like another era. Back then, and I'm talking about January, we were considering how revolutions in healthcare could resolve chronic illnesses, those kinds of sicknesses that debilitate millions of peoples and the lives that they live. Now, of course, we're talking about something else entirely, problems that are acute and immediate. It. It's happening right now. We know exactly what's coming. We can see it in Italy. We can see it in Spain. Uh, we can see it all He's been called away from his operating tables, out of his research projects and thrown into the front line. I caught up with him on a video call between shifts. On the screen, he looked tired. He spoke a good deal of the time with his eyes closed. James, how's life on the wards now? So I would say that there is a there is a degree of apprehensiveness because we're watching Europe and we're seeing what's happening. And, you know, this is a very personal view, actually. This is my view. I can't really comment for other people. But I, I would say that I'm expecting that wave to hit and we know it's going to be bad now. I don't think there's much doubt about that. We're seeing what's happening in Italy. So we're expecting very large numbers of patients and we're expecting to make very difficult decisions and we're expecting to be severely tested. And, and of course, that certainly leaves you feeling a little bit nervous. Uh, and, of course, it's challenging because we know that many of my professionals professional colleagues are going to be asked to do things which they're not typically used to doing. Like if you're a surgeon, for example, looking after someone who's critically unwell and in the worst case having to run a ventilator. So that leads to a degree of apprehension. But I think there is also some concern about safety. So I think clinicians are extremely aware that they are going to be at risk. Uh, and there is a degree, uh, well, quite a marked degree of concern about how we're going to properly protect ourselves from this when, when we really hit peak surge and about two weeks time because the stories or the reporting you're getting from italy suggests that there are a large number of healthcare workers who are being affected by this yeah, so it depends very much on which region of Italy you're in and where you're on the country. But rates of healthcare workers, you know, if you look across the board, range from around one in 10 uh, of all COVID cases to, you know, 20% in the highest centres. It, it's a real threat. And we know in the United Kingdom that young doctors are going to be affected and young nurses and young volunteers and anybody that's working in the hospital environment. And that inevitably is going to be something that we're going to have to deal with in the coming weeks. Can you begin to look a week, two weeks, a month down the line and get a sense of what you think is going to happen in UK hospitals? I think depressingly, uh, we don't have to imagine it, we can see it. We know that in two weeks' time, we're going to be facing the sorts of numbers that uh, the Italians are, are currently managing. It's inevitable. So I think that really focuses the mind and it's a race against time. It's literally a race against time now. A race to do what? A race to establish the right healthcare assets and architecture to manage the volume and the severity of illness that we're going to see. So we have to completely pivot from being an organisation that, you know, was setting up to, to face the mountain of chronic disease by preventing chronic disease and trying to move care into the community into an organisation which now has to do exactly the opposite. We have to manage very, very large numbers of the very sickest people. And that means that we have to completely restructure whole buildings physically. We've literally got to build 
build new spaces and redesign and remove uh, walls. Uh, and then we also have to find equipment and fill those rooms with the right equipment that we need. And then we've got to train the people to use that equipment. So it's all very well having a ventilator, but it's absolutely no use if you don't have someone who knows how to work it and you don't have the nursing staff that know how to look after that patient who is on the ventilator and you don't have enough oxygen to run through it. So there's a massive operational component to this. And this has all been kicking in really over the last few weeks as the NHS sort of emergency plans have been deployed to try and adapt. And James, I know you've talked a lot to colleagues in Italy. What's the biggest lesson that you get from them? So so we've run several uh, meetings with these uh, amazing people who are just doing sterling work in um, in Geneva and Milan, brilliant colleagues. And, and the, thing, the thing you have to remember about these places is that these are good hospitals full of good people, all right? And I've been there and I've visited these places myself. And that's what makes this so frightening, is that these are, the, these are people who I absolutely trust. And to see them going through this is troubling because it makes you think, well, okay, how are we going to cope with this? And they tell us a couple of things. The first thing they said is... Um, protect your staff. Your staff are your most precious asset, and if you don't look after them, you can't look after anybody else. So look after your staff. The second thing that really stuck with me was beware the COVID negative ward. So quite often in hospitals in Italy, what they're doing as is best practice is streamlining patients into those who are COVID positive and those who are COVID negative. And the idea is, is that if you're COVID negative, you can be nursed with minimum barrier requirements or with this PPE. And uh, what they're finding is they're getting a lot of doctors who are contracting COVID-19 on these wards. And they When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. told us some other valuable lessons about how to structure your healthcare service and how you prioritize patients and this common theme is test 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 you know test as much as you can as often as you can and of course that's a big challenge for us Uh, and then their final lesson was you need to find a way to maintain your elective service so you've got to find a way to operate you can't just abandon people with chronic diseases so you've got to find a way to keep that model going and the way that they're doing at the moment is creating a hub and spoke system so you you try and create clean hospitals where you simply only manage elective care and you try and uh, siphon out your acute care problems into into centres just to deal with those. 
James, when you speak to your colleagues in Italy, is it clear to them why this continuous exposure to patients with C19 means they're not just more likely to contract it, but also suffer and potentially die from it? Is there a dose effect? Can you explain the viral load? And how does COVID-19 present itself? So so what we're seeing... Um is, again, probably what many of you will have heard in the press, which is that the most severely affected people do tend to be the most vulnerable. So they tend to be older uh, and they tend to have other health-related problems, so chronic health-related problems. So it tends to be more men than women, men with high blood pressure or cardiac problems or a history of malignancy or, or other problems, and they take a lot of medications, and these people seem to be more vulnerable. But we are seeing, at the other end of that spectrum, a very large number of either uh, asymptomatic patients so patients who come to the hospital and they come apparently normal with other pathology, with other disease. And of course, you do a chest X-ray or CT and then you find it inadvertently. And certainly we're seeing that in London already. And then uh, although the majority of people are affected, they are having young people collapse with this. And uh, it does affect young people. It is in a minority and uh, it is not as common as with old people, but they are having young people. The natural course of this uh, condition is that you tend to have a prodromal illness and usually um, about a week after having it, the deterioration is very rapid. So so the, the, these cases tend to be very aggressive when they deteriorate and there tends to be a short amount of time between you know feeling quite unwell and short of breath and, and having a total collapse. Uh, and what, how does that collapse present itself? So it will present with effectively difficulty in breathing. So so the terrible feeling of shortness of breath, you feel shortness of breath, short of breath just sitting at rest um, you know um, a friend of mine had uh, couldn't have a conversation on the telephone with me it was that bad and he's a young chap he's 40 but you, these these patients when they become unwell they're very unwell they look absolutely awful and they will be sweaty grey and it's very apparent that something's not right when you look at them from the end of the bed the other quite frightening thing to me was that but a large number of people that get this disease are completely asymptomatic so we are seeing a number of patients who come to the hospital and they come for uh, a completely unrelated reason. So I'm a surgeon, they might come in with appendicitis. You do a, C- you do a CT scan and lo and behold, they've got COVID lung. So there is a, an enormously wide uh, distribution in how this disease presents and the symptoms that it causes. The tests that we have for diagnosing COVID are not, not very accurate. Uh, and so they, patients will often be streamed according to that that test and they will sit on the ward asymptomatic and therefore patients perhaps don't get quite the same PPE or barrier nursing and that's when the majority of the health workers seem to be affected. So to come back to your original question, um, does does is there a dose effect? Does the do, the volume, you know, the, the the size of the dose that you get influence the severity or the rapidity of your disease onset? Yes, it can in, in different diseases it can cause it, but in this disease we're seeing this very very wide distribution of clinical presentations, and so it's very difficult to answer your question. Uh, and sorry, James, this might be an unfair question, but how do you think frontline NHS staff feel about the equipment? that they've got you you don't need to be a reporter you can just go onto social media and you will see a lot of my colleagues who are very angry they're angry that they're not being given the protection that we're seeing in other countries and in other nation states that are having to respond to this and we want to look after our patients and support people who are ill but not having the correct or the best protective gear puts us and patients at risk We've had doctors tell us that they feel like lambs to the slaughter, that they feel like cannon fodder. Uh, GPs tell us that they feel absolutely abandoned. And we must really stress to the Prime Minister 
that we need to protect the front line here. Uh, so they are all pleading uh, with Boris Johnson that... And there is also a degree of mixed messaging. So what what constitutes effective PPE? So what's PPE? So so that means basically um, the protective clothing that you wear. So enough masks, uh, enough gloves and enough gowns so that you can protect yourself from the virus either by acquiring it through touch or by uh, aerialised viruses that come uh, from coughing, for example. And are you allowed, James, if, if you say, look, I haven't got the protective kit, are you allowed to say, look, I'm not coming into work today as a result of that? Again, I'm going to speak from a very personal experience because I think that's the right thing to do. So my, my personal experience is that that is not an issue, certainly not with my colleagues. My colleagues are just phenomenal, actually, to be honest with you. And everyone is, there's a tremendous spirit of camaraderie and team support. So it's not something I've witnessed. But I do have concerns for some of my colleagues who do have perhaps health problems that I know is going to expose them to excessive risk. So actually, sometimes you have to step in and say, look, I really don't think you should be here. And that's a very difficult thing if you've trained all of your life to do one job, and then you can't do it. If you're a clinician, you can't be a clinician. That's a problem. We have discussed this and, uh, you know, between colleagues and between friends. And and what do you do if someone says, I don't want to expose myself to this risk? And and I don't think it's right. And at the moment, I think those cases are going to have to be managed individually. I think there are going to be very few of them, but you you could have sympathy for someone if that was their argument. And what happens to, if you like, normal life, the, the world of patients who don't have C19 or don't seem to have COVID-19, but have come in for other operations, other procedures? If you're listening to this, I'm sure you don't have a normal life. I, I don't think anyone's got a normal life at the moment. But but I think it's particularly hard for people who have serious medical problems. So I'm talking about people that might have severe cardiac disease or might have um, urological problems like prostate cancer or they might have bowel cancer. Serious medical problems that need treatment. And effectively, we're having to say at the moment, we can't treat you. And it's really difficult because you're you feel like you're failing them I suppose but we're having to make this incredibly difficult choice who who do you prioritize and why and at, at the moment nationally we have to prioritize in the short in the very very short term this wave of COVID-19 patients that are going to come our way the challenge with that of course is that if you just stop treating every patient with heart disease or every patient who needs a hip replacement or every patient that has a chronic lung disease that's not COVID-19 you build up a very significant second mortality peak, if you like, because if you don't treat these people effectively, of course, they're going to also become unwell. So that is a really big challenge. And it's the one I'm sure the NHS will face and will address. But it is something we need to think about early because we need to find a way to maintain the delivery of that normal care now. And we're at a moment in time where it seems unfair to point the finger or blame anyone. But 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 working where you do, do you think that we could have prepared earlier? Do you think that we could have seen more of this coming even days or possibly weeks earlier? So I want to be, I want to sort of be qualify what I'm going to say first, which is that, you know, I think um, my healthcare colleagues have been extraordinary and still are extraordinary doing amazing work. And I think everyone in the NHS is, 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 is great. And that's not false praise, right? That's genuine. And I think our epidemiologists have been given a tough time, perhaps because there is a feeling that they didn't ring 
the alarm bell loud enough. But my personal feeling, this is really personal, it's not based on anything other than my own observation, is that actually this is a collective failure of, uh, of leadership at a higher level and that also we have got a human behaviour problem because basically you didn't need to be an epidemiologist or a data scientist here. The data was very, very clear, you know, at the end of December when the Chinese uh, alerted the WHO to the problem in Wuhan. We have had established models for managing these pandemics that have come out of the Far East and uh, we knew this was a problem. There was time, there was time to to create a plan. WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the And I think all of this has to be put into the context of the events in the UK at the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, where people just had their focus elsewhere. And whether, you know, who had their focus elsewhere and when they did it and who said what to whom, I don't know. At the moment, frankly, as a clinician on the front line, I don't care. There's no time. I just don't care. Right now, we've all got bigger problems and we will work all of that out when we're picking up the pieces 18 months from now. My job right now is to try and prepare us for what's coming and it's, I don't think it's going to be very nice. Is it possible to predict with any kind of clarity where the needs are going to be most acute, where the, where the problems are going to be the most keenly felt? So there is a significant amount of work going, going on at the moment to try and map the geography of demand and where we're going to expect to see it. And you can, to a degree, make models based on population risk, so based on age, population density, comorbidities, etc. The challenges, of course, is that those models are really full of a lot of assumptions and we won't really know until until this plays out. And, of course, we also don't know how effective the NHS plan is going to be and how we are going to respond to it. So, so that, that sounds negative, but I don't mean it to be. It might actually be that we're able to do more here than we had, than we had thought. And it may be that we can affect the outcome. We can still affect the outcome. And I, and I want to make re, one really important point here, right? Which is that the treatment of this disease is not the treatment that we're going to give to people in a hospital. This is critical. The treatment here is in isolation, it is in testing, and is in contact tracing. Unless we do that really, really aggressively, we will not lock this thing down. You don't put your faith in a vaccine. We will get a vaccine at some point, but it's not coming anytime soon. Don't put your faith in a ventilator. Stay at home. Lock yourself down. And if you get this thing, you test and you contact trace and you follow the advice you're given. And that's how we're going to beat it. And that, it, that has to be the clearest message that I can give you. Uh, and James, that, that, that's helpful because the final thing I wanted to ask you was, is there anything that people like me can do for people like you? Right? I, it's one thing to say, yes, I'm going to stay at home. But is there anything that you can do to help people who are in the NHS who are actually going to be dealing with this and exposed to the illness with all the risks that we now understand that entails? What can people like me helpfully do? 
So you see, you know, in the press in Italy, in the news in Italy, people, you know, applauding and, and, and clapping and just being very generous to their health workers. And that's all lovely. And um, it's very nice. And we've had this lovely support from industry and people giving us food and, and hotels. And this is all great. But the one thing that you can do is stay at home. If you don't isolate and lock yourself down, you will end up coming to see me in a hospital. And if you do that, that means I can't treat someone else. If you get sick, you isolate, you test, you contact trace. That's the most important thing that you can do. Okay, got it. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And so I suppose here I am doing what I can do, being at home, reporting on the situation that healthcare workers face. It doesn't feel like much, but I suppose a lot of us are trying to do just what we can. That's a sound which is becoming strangely familiar to people who work in the NHS and health services everywhere. Sometimes they find they're just being applauded spontaneously. Healthcare workers, of course, are on the front lines of war with illness, with pandemics. In 2003, 44% of the infections in the SARS outbreak in Toronto, Canada, were in healthcare workers. Two nurses and a doctor died. Most recently, in the US state of Arkansas, four of the first 12 COVID-19 cases were healthcare workers. And back in China, about 3,000 healthcare workers were infected and 22 have died providing care for COVID-19 patients. One of them, of course, was Dr. Li Wenliang. We still don't entirely understand why a man in his early 30s was killed by the virus. He was infected on the 7th of January, admitted to an intensive care ward on the 12th. The official account is that his condition became critical on the 5th of February, i.e. weeks later. And then on the 6th, his blood oxygen level dropped sharply. The hospital in Wuhan reportedly used extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, ECMO as we've come to know it, to keep him alive, but it wasn't enough. What happened in those frenzied final hours was strange, a story in itself. His death was reported, then the authorities retracted it, and then in the early hours of February the 7th, his death was confirmed. At the time, it was reported that 17 million people were following a live stream for his status updates. The life and death of Li Wenliang hovers over the whole COVID-19 pandemic. And the painful irony probably isn't lost on healthcare workers when they hear the applause from windows, because the truth is we weren't clapping a month ago and soon they'll be out of earshot, working for days on end in really difficult, frightening conditions. And some of them won't come out to hear our thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. We've opened up all of our journalism. You can download the Tortoise app for a free trial for the next 30 days. Because we're not here to add to the breaking news. We're trying to understand what's driving it. Trying to make sense of what's happening right now, together.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.